1: Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day, Saturday, September 23, 2023. Not just any Shabbat Saturday, but one between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the big one for people of my faith. So I wish you an easy fast, and I wish CU great luck at Oregon. Oh my goodness, that Rosh Hashanah miracle game, The Rocky Mountain Showdown, it is legend. I feel drawn to Oregon as a result. I felt drawn to have on Jane Feldman in the inner sanctum section of Craig's Lawyer's Lounge because, one, she's Jewish, and she had to make a choice in that regard because her father, Feldman, was a Jew, but her mother, a wasp from Grand Junction, not my description of hers, she's fascinating. And then she became a lawyer and she worked for Morgenthau because he was a family friend. Hey, she was probably a great lawyer. You can tell she's a great communicator, but it doesn't hurt to have family connections. And her family worked with Morgenthau through the years. If you don't know Robert Morgenthau, you should. He was Manhattan's DA from what was it, 75 till about 2008, something like that. Extraordinary long time. They based that show Law & Order New York on the guy. And my guess, Jane Feldman, knew him. But she also knows truth. And that's what we seek as we go into Yom Kippur, to understand things better. She's great on social media. She was great when she worked for the Attorney General of Colorado, for a long time. I got to know her then, but I know her better now because I had a heck, a heck of an interview. See, I almost said H-E double toothpicks, but this show, right before Yom Kippur, I'm not taking chances. But I do want to let some things go and entertain you. That's what our troubadour Dave Gunders is about. His song, When I Die, When I Die is a classic. Perfect for Yom Kippur because we all contemplate death. I make Jane Feldman laugh when I recount another man's joke, so I'll give it to you at the start. My rabbi Rick Ryan said, Second day Rosh Hashanah, I know I'm going to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And isn't that true for all of us? We don't want to die. Now there's possible immortality, whatever But I'm not sure that uh, people my age will get to that point. big part of my life was working on the radio with Dan Kaplis, Kaplis and Silverman, kind of a legendary show. Two people going at it, attorneys who were bright. And we pretty much got along. We had some mutual battles, like against Ward Churchill up at CU, because he was a fraud, kind of like Donald Trump. And he was also a bigot. You know, he tried to use race to divide. I didn't like that. That's why I was in on it. That's why I go against Donald Trump. But Dan Kaplis, he's a Trump supporter, although this week he was upset that Trump criticized that heartbeat bill in Florida. But Dan's all about abortion. He states that frequently. But how far will he go? Holy cow. He defends Lauren Boebert, and she makes my... Skin Itch. I'm going to try to be kind to everybody as we approach Yom Kippur. And remember, as I do around episode 100, that's a long time ago, we're up to episode 171, but I invited Kyle Clark and Dan Kaplis on. Wouldn't that be a show? You know, Craig's Colorado Corner, my panel show, that's the ideal, is get an interesting pairing. And I think it's before I realized that Dan was committed to MAGA propaganda. And more than anything, he just said, no, I won't do it with Kyle Clark. And I don't want to come on if you want to ask me about Kyle Clark. And holy cow, I'm not going to put on that kind of condition. And now I'm not going to put on any MAGA propaganda. But we had some good times back in the day. And because I came from inside that industry, I pay attention to Peter Boyles, Dan Kaplis, these guys I worked with for so many years, because people keep going to them for information. So I want to hear what's happening on that real estate I once occupied, specifically 630K, how a legacy station that has just been turned over to the right wing in the morning, that Joe pags in the afternoon. To me, it's shameful. But that's the marketplace. And I'm a competitive guy. And this podcast is profitable. And it's wonderful. And radio has no profit to it anymore. Dan Kaplis buys his show. He buys everybody else's show in a way by being a major sponsor. Sponsors Randy Corporan, Sponsors 710 Kenya Gets live reads from Peter Boyles. That's expensive. George Brockler, daily, daily, pounds at home. Jimmy Leakey or Leakey, whoever in Fort Collins, he's trying to dominate that market. The show he bought extends down to Pueblo and Colorado Springs. He's trying to cover the whole state. And apparently, it's good for his law practice, which, you know what? They've had success. Dan's had tremendous monetary success. His law firm keeps changing down to him and Bobber, I believe. No more former DAs, despite what you might have heard. I'm a former DA. I'm still working. If you want a former DA, you can call me and I have my ads right here. And Dan runs his ads during his show, along with some really the kind of ads. Well, there aren't ads. It's like an infomercial. But the information being given out is not good. And he also has a megaphone for people like Lauren Boebert, who's been in the news. Lauren Boebert has been a frequent guest of Dan Kaplis, and why not? He treats her like royalty. Here, let me give you an example from an October 3, 2022 show. Understand, she had a tight race with Adam Frisch. Who thought it was tight? I did. I wrote about Adam Frisch a long time ago, long time before the election. And I said he had a chance, and I put him on my podcast. And he said, I'll go on any show. And then I challenged all these Denver Trump radio hosts to put him on, and Capless did put him on, and Frisch was great. But after that, he went back Well, it's before you keep pouring. I'm going to put this in quotes. He went back to being in the pocket of Lauren Boebert, in bed with Lauren Boebert. No, let's just say on the side of Lauren Boebert, okay? He went back to being on the side of Lauren Boebert because he had her on to give a gushing endorsement on October 3, 2022, as the ballots start to go out. Listen to this and understand he had Dick Wadhams in the studio with him. Dick Wadhams, a guest several episodes ago on my show, a Republican consultant who wanted Bobert to win. Even though Dick has the courage to call out MAGA, he was still on Dan's side regarding supporting Bobo. And they were touting this Denver Gazette, or not Denver, it's the whole shoots. Wayne Logerson editorial page endorsed Christian nationalist Lauren Boebert. And you'll hear about it October 3, 2022, when there's a reference to Dick. It's not the Buell Theater, it's Dick Wadham's in the house. He, you can hear him just a little bit, but this is mainly a back and forth between Dan Kaplis and Congresswoman Lauren Boebert who desperately wants to win re-election in 2022, and she did. So listen to this gushing introduction by Dan Kaplis of Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, who realizes she's in the fight of her life. She gets endorsed by the Gazette, and Dan wants to amplify that. And boy, does he, with Dick Wadham's in the house. So when you hear Lauren Boebert talk about Dick, That's a reference to Dick Wadhams, not anything nasty. Come on now. This is going to be a PG nice show.
2: My goodness, from taking on Scott Tipton to now being, you know, the the most influential first term congressperson, that's uh, quite a journey.
3: Well, thank you so much. And, and Dick, it's great to talk with you and, and have you on the line with us. Um, you know, uh, what what you wrote about the governor um, just recently, that was an amazing article. So, you know, thanks for, for your wisdom. And, you know, I mean, we, we can all endure some surprises every now and then. Um, I, I think this whole journey um, started as a surprise to me and my family. Um, never knew that it would turn into something like this. I just wanted to put my hand to something and be a part of the solution rather than sitting at home on my sofa and complaining about all that. I was seeing um, go on in government. And so here we are. Uh, I'm in it fighting the good fight and um, fighting against Nancy Pelosi's con game and making sure we fire her as speaker.
2: Well, and and speaking of great columns, I I think one of the best, most thoughtful editorials, pardon me, endorsements I've ever read was the Gazette endorsement of you. And we're going to quote from that later in the show. I won't take your time up with it now. I'm sure you've probably seen it. (laughs) But but I, I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. Now, I'll give people one quick taste since I'm referring to it. The Gazette writes in part. Uh, Bobert and her legions of rural constituents of various denominations proudly believe in God, a right protected by the First Amendment. For that reason and nothing more, a reporter called Boebert a, quote, dangerous Christian nationalist aligned with, quote, white evangelical racism who jeopardizes the country's democratic process. And then it goes on to just talk about the way you have stood up for religious freedom in the face of all of that. So I, I just think they... Detailed your impact and successes brilliantly. I hope everybody reads that. Is it up at laurenforcolorado.com?
3: Uh, yes. Uh, so we, we should have it up at laurenforcolorado.com. It's certainly on my social media pages, Lauren Boebert for Congress, and on Twitter, at Lauren Boebert. Um, I, I tweeted it there. The Gazette um, has their um, Twitter that where they've posted it as well. Um But laurenforcolorado.com is uh, my campaign website. So you could go and find out all the information that I'm doing. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't call myself a, a Christian nationalist. I don't need a qualifier for my faith. I am a Christian.
1: Talk about your free advertising. Lauren Bobert preaching on 630K and stations all over Colorado because Dan has bought that and it's good for his practice, but it's bad for democracy. I have to say that I'm glad I don't do afternoon drive anymore, but occasionally I could have gotten off so many great jokes on Lauren Boebert, but this is... Uh, the high holiday season, but if you listen to that last soundbite, and if we cut it up when she said she had to put my hand to something, maybe that's her defense in the Buell theater, and I put out possible defenses for her on my Twitter at Craig's, Colorado. The New York Post called me and quoted me in an article about the potential legal consequences. But enough about me. Let's go back to Lorne Boebert and the Dan Kaplis show and his producer from Michigan, the guy who loves Ron DeSantis and uh, he finds Trump acceptable. And he runs that show by pulling all the sound bites and he's willing to step in when Dan Kaplis is running late. That's exciting when you don't have anybody to go on air and you're not really prepared, but they were prepared that day because Lauren Bobert decided to drop her October surprise where? On the Dan Kaplis show. Why not? Talk about friendly confines. Friendly confines of the Dan Kaplis show is where she chose to make a sex allegation against Adam Frisch, as announced by Ryan Schuling, who's waiting for Dan Kaplis to arrive. But he breaks it to the audience, and it caused a bit of a sensation, and maybe it caused Adam Frisch to lose by about 500 votes. Listen to this from October 13, 2022, just, what, about nine days? Ten days after that gushy interview I just played?
0: I do promise you, Dan Kaplis will be walking through that door in mere moments, I have been told, but... Fighting some traffic on the I-25, as so many of you can relate to, all up and down the front range. We appreciate you listening all up and down the front range, from Fort Collins to Pueblo and all points in between. We have listeners in Wyoming. We have listeners in New Mexico. And we appreciate all of you tuning in on this Thursday. Later on in the program, this will be about 536, Lauren Bober representative for Colorado's 3rd Congressional District, will be joining Dan to follow up on an article published in Breitbart today, a bombshell report regarding her Democratic opponent, Adam Frisch. Now, you may recall that there were allegations that were made totally unfounded against Boebert herself from the left that Senator Ted Cruz and others helped disavow and to counter, once they were reported, something about her providing services as an escort, absolutely ridiculous beyond the pale stuff, but this is politics, it's dirty baseball, and we're in October. And what is the term you've heard of about October before during election years? That's right, Kelly. She's screening your calls, by the way. At uh, What's the number? You want to give that out?
3: Uh, yes, 405-8255. 800, right? No
0: Eight five five. sorry 4-0-5-8-2-5-5. I, I know there. and I
3: just
4: I
5: dropped
0: there. the ball There's Dan I uh, okay eight five five four zero five eight two five five but just to set the table for Dan who just walked in I want to give him a comfortable transition here uh, it is alleged now in the Breitbart article that I previously referenced that Adam Frisch had an affair with a woman at a storage facility owned by the uh, owner of a taxi company in Aspen. Now, this goes back about five years.
1: Holy cow. One of the greatest decisions I ever made was not to go back with Dan Kaplan's, because Ryan Schuling was there, and we did a little experiment. And I met that guy, and Dan said, Hey, this guy, he's, he's independent. Come on. And that crew... But there's Dan Kaplis with his producer, Ryan Schuling, who fills in for Ross Kaminsky on KOA. This is a guy who is totally dedicated to Lauren Boburn, but he brings up the fact that she was accused of being an escort. And if they revisited that, given her behavior at the Buell Theater, not just her behavior, but her dress, we will get to that. But let's go back to how... Dan Kaplis reacted to this sex allegation against Adam Fish, and whether he waited until he had verification that the story was true, credible, talked to the witness. It came from Breitbart right there. I don't trust it. Steve Bannon, come on. You've got to vet these things before you put it out on Cahill. But those were the old days. I've got to let it go. That was the real estate that I occupied for eight and a half years with Dan, but those days were long ago, and Dan comes right on the air, and listen to what he says about this unsubstantiated allegation made by a guy named Todd Gardner, who nobody's ever heard of, who subsequently gets discredited by the Aspen Daily News. It was about November first. There was no follow-up on the Dan Kaplan show. All there was was the red carpet treatment for Lauren Boebert, who I submit is a white Christian nationalist, who goes on white Christian nationalist radio and she gets to smear the the Jewish guy, Adam Frisch, the guy from Aspen, the dirty dog who's having sex in a storage locker. Listen to how this goes. Once Dan arrives late, he pounces on the story broken to us by his uh, controller. I mean, producer Ryan Schuling. And it comes out to all of Colorado and Wyoming, as Schuling says, with Dan Kaplis, the lawyer, announcing this.
2: The heart of the allegation, the allegation, is that Adam Frisch had an affair in a storage shed that uh, at a place where this guy was running a taxi company and that Adam Frisch uh, allegedly was then successfully blackmailed by this individual over the affair at the storage shed. So that's the gist of the allegation as I understand. it. Now uh, Todd Gardner, I don't know. I've never heard the name before today, have not had the chance to do the kind of deep dive Uh, on his credibility that i would do in any one of my law cases or any major public issue like this so for me whether i believe this is true or not is is going to come down in large part to what i learn about todd gardner i can tell you the statement from adam frisch in my opinion is what i call in in the law practice a non-denial denial
1: denial. oh come on damn no i'm not gonna curse I I concur this way, that Dan just damned Adam Frisch. A guy who was nice to him on the phone, he he damned Adam Frisch by saying it was a non-denial denial, when the denial was a complete denial. This story is false. He put out his statement, but it wasn't to the satisfaction of my former radio partner, Dan Kaplis. Anyway, I didn't think that was very fair, and then even less fair, but really quite revealing is when Lauren Boebert goes on the air with Dan Kaplis. This is mid-October, when she's springing her October surprise on her Aspen Jewish opponent, Adam Frisch, with Dan Kaplis as an accomplice. And here she is slinging these allegations, but talking about what should happen, what he's done to his family, And all that sort of stuff that really is quite interesting when you consider what happened at the Buell Theater in Denver in uh, this month of September with her uh, date when they were, well, we'll get to all of that. But understand, we're going back to October of 2022 and on Colorado Airwaves, via Dan Kaplis, who pays for his show to air... Stuff like this, which really might have won the election for Lauren Boebert, because who wants to vote for a guy who's going to have sex in a storage shed, ride to his bicycle to do it, embarrass his family? Listen to Lauren Boebert with Dan Kaplis. Dan,
3: my heart goes out to his wife and to his family. They should not have to go through this. And it's unfortunate that he has put them in this position, knowing that this was in his past, knowing that it has come up before and was successfully used against him. And uh, to put them through that again, you know, I, I think that this is a hobby of his that got out of control. Um, he, he, he liked it a little bit and, uh, you know, thought, well, let's just go bigger. You know, I, I don't think that it was ever in their family's uh, plan to be in politics. It certainly wasn't in my family's plan. I get Mm -hmm. it. Uh, But, but, you know, I think this is something that uh, his family didn't sign up for. And, The corruption here is what I want to highlight and what I want to focus on. It is not fair to the voters. It is not fair to his family. And uh, I do believe that he needs to resign, withdraw from this race. Uh, The Colorado GOP, uh, Christy Burton Brown, has called on Adam Frisch to resign from this race, to withdraw from this race. And uh, I I think that he should take take serious consideration into doing that after being exposed in this way.
1: Holy cow, Christy Burton-Brown, you mean the lady who fills in for Dan Kaplis when he can't make it? She filled in one day, and I was down in Pueblo, and she was so misrepresenting the indictments. And I wanted to ask her about Dominion out of Denver, and how she was involved with Joe Altman in FBC, and I wanted to talk about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. And I interacted with that, what's her name, that... uh call screener, alleged call screener, Kelly, who was giggling on that one soundbite, and then Ryan Schuling. But anyway, I got on air, and Christy Burton Brown, God love her and her homeschooling, but she's not a great lawyer. She's not a decent talk show host, but it's not about that. It's about other things. It's about putting forth a white Christian nationalist message. And if you take Christianity seriously, you know, I've met a lot of Christians. You'd think they wouldn't go for a certain behavior, like Lauren Boebert at the Buell Theater and having known Dan Kaplis on air for a long time. I know that her misbehavior really had to hit a lot of his hot buttons, stuff that he's spoken out against over the years, like smoking. He was dedicated to stop tobacco smoking when his mom passed away, and he supported that litigation. I did, too. He thought that the people in the tobacco industry, people who do that... Anyway, he's an anti-smoking advocate, And but it, it, it pales in comparison to his anti-marijuana cellotry. And I don't know what she was smoking, but she was vaping something, and... Uh, I, I I wanted to know, and I bet a lot of people on the front range wanted to know, well, what will Dan Kaplis say about this? And when all the facts come out, all the pictures, 9 News did a great job. So did the Colorado Sun. They got the incident report. And she even had to apologize, Lauren Bobert. So I, I was curious, what would Dan Kaplis have to say about that pregnant lady. My God, Dan is all about protecting the child in the womb. And there's a pregnant lady in the vicinity of this smoke being exhaled by Lauren Boebert. And she asks nicely, hey, could you stop? I'm pregnant. You can even see it on the video. And Lauren is, you know, says no. They called her name, and and then she starts gyrating crazy. It looked like she was on something. I don't know. I'm not talking about the dude. I'm just saying alcohol, uh, what she was consuming through that vape, what she consumed before she got there. But I know Kaplis, he, he wants to work G-rated. So he's not down with obscenity. And there she was with obscenities, even hand gestures. And then How about that public groping, the sexuality? She had one hand in his lap, but that wasn't enough. She reaches over with the other hand. She'd used her hand to put his hand on her boob, which was totally exposed. This lady who had spoken out against grooming and uh, uh, all the overt sexuality at drag shows. And it turns out this guy... She's dating Quinn Gallagher, or she was dating. He had a bar in Aspen, a hooch something, and they had a drag show. She's dumped him now since that came out. But what about the violation of the Colorado Clean Indoor Air Act? What about disturbing the peace? There are all sorts of crimes that may fit, and I talked about it with the New York Post when they called and asked me about it. Now, the Denver DA has rejected charges, but in my experience, if I was sitting in intake, we used to call it the complaints unit at DPD HQ, if a detective brought it to me, maybe I'd take it, maybe I wouldn't. I explained it in the New York Post, but I wouldn't just say drop it. I'd say have the Denver city attorney look at it because there are municipal code violations And I've seen those kinds of things prosecuted all my life in Denver, but looks like Bobert will escape. But I didn't think she'd escape the wrath of Dan Kaplis because, my goodness, it was the lying afterwards that Bobert sunk her own ship. She acted like the vaping accusation was baloney, yet the video gave it away. And it gave away so much more. Who knew that infrared camera would work that good. So I thought, gosh, Dan Kaplan took such a hard stand. What was it against Tom Brady? Uh, just you remember. So that's what made me curious. And I kind of monitored these guys because they came from the belly of that beast. And I don't like MAGA propaganda. And maybe I should let it go over these high holidays, but it's so interesting to hear how Kaplis reacted. Here's how Dan Kaplis reacted as he got time to absorb all the information about Lauren Boebert and what she had done at the Buell Theater. And when you hear this, and I heard it, I thought, well, good for him. Dan Kaplis draws a line. He says it was wrong on every level. And then he goes further, but first, hear how he started it.
2: And there were some more revelations as more videotape, et cetera kept coming out and and bottom line is Congresswoman Bobert then you know eventually came out and issued this statement. I'll quote it in part. The past few days have been difficult and humbling, and I'm truly sorry for the unwanted attention my Sunday evening in Denver has brought to the community. It goes on from there, and so uh yeah, bottom line is. Come on, obviously she fell below her own standards uh, and she fell below the standards an office holder should have. Uh, we all at some point in our lives, I, I think, at least speaking for myself, we all fall below our own standards at some point and that, that's just part of being human. And then that happened with her. And, you know, where should it go from here? Hey, it'll be interesting to see if in the end it's a factor in her reelection. Do you think it will be, Ryan? And, and that's one thing I'd love your thoughts on. You can text Dan 57739. Do you think this will be a factor in her re-election? I, I do think it's important to keep some things in context, okay? Yes, she failed, and it was significant, and it embarrasses the office. It embarrasses her. The conduct was wrong on multiple levels, no question. It, it, then, listen, the, the, the double standard from some in the media – should be recognized because it's important, not because there shouldn't have been reporting on what Congresswoman Boebert did. It's fair game now that we know all these facts. That's fair game.
1: Well, good. I thought he was going to talk about the double standards, her not being arrested, her not being given a summons and complaint, at least for municipal ordinance violation. Maybe Dan had changed. These are the days of awe. And when he said we all fall below in our standards, yes, absolutely. Our day of atonement is coming. These are the times of confession, admission. We have fallen short. Lauren Boebert is particularly short. No, I'm sorry about that, Lord. I mean, she may fall short. So do I. So does everybody. But who is Dan going to rip with this double standard talk? Oh, no. He's going to rip the media. And that's what's happened with this Bober thing. And Dan gets it going. And where he's going is, hey, it's the media. Who doesn't cover Jared Polis? Who doesn't cover Joe Biden? What did Polis do? Oh, remember that Kim Kardashian canoodling? Or what about Joe Biden sniffing everybody's hair? Isn't that the same thing? No. No, Dan. It's not. Anyway, with kindness, listen to this. On that same show, Monday, September 18, 2023, after all the facts were known about Lauren Bobert and her canoodling at the Buell Theater. And canoodling a nice way of saying lewd acts, as defined by a statute.
2: But... We wouldn't get the same reporting on Democrats. We know that, right? On prominent Democrats. How do we know that? We've seen it, right? I mean, you you look at some stuff that prominent Democrats, including the most vivid example is, is Jared Polis, that he's done, and he's done in the context of his office, that has been far, far, far more harmful than this bad conduct by Congresswoman Boebert And you don't see the same kind of investigative reporting. You don't see the same kind of follow-up.
1: Oh, baby. Where was that follow-up on Todd Gardner? The guy who was the source of that October surprise against Adam Frisch. Perhaps an apology is owed there by Bobert and by the show host who allowed her to do that on that Valuable real estate at K and all those other stations that Mr. Capless pays for. So it's really not fair. It's an in kind contribution. And I'm trying to be kind, but I'm going to expose what's going on here. And what's the lesson that Lauren Boebert ends up taking away from all of this? Well, the cameras, the paparazzi of what was it, TMZ, catch up with her. And I think it was DIA. And here's the lesson as learned by Congresswoman Boebert. And that is, she better check out the party affiliation of her date. And she dumped Quinn Gallagher like a hot potato. Or maybe it was vice versa. In that world, you know, usually the opposite is true. Gosh, I feel sorry for Mr. Gallagher's children and Boebert's too. But listen to the lesson learned by Lauren Boebert as she talks to the paparazzi. from I know it's, you know been a rough week,
0: or has it been?
3: Uh, you know, it's, um, it's always hard whenever um, there's gravity put on the voters. I'm here to provide levity and lift burdens off of people, so anytime that they're carrying mine, it's something that I you know, kind of feel deep inside. But. Ultimately, all future date nights have been canceled, and um, I learned to check party affiliations uh, before you go on a date. Uh, but all in all, um, you know, it was, uh, it was mostly a lovely time, and, you know, I've taken responsibility for my actions. Um, I'd love to know how the, the musical ended.
1: Oh, my gosh. She's back to making that joke. How did the musical And If she took accountability, I'd love to see the Denver City Attorney issue a summons. She could plead guilty, get a two hundred dollar fine. That would be real accountability. But how about those joke opportunities? If I was on the radio when she starts off, it it it's. It, what did she say? It's it's been very hard. I mean, there are just puns all over the place. When she talked about gravity and levity, you don't think I would have made jokes about that? She's not here to give us gravity. She's trying to elevate us. My God, where are the late night comedians when we need them? And her job is to supply levity? (laughs) I am laughing at that because she, it would be funny, but for the fact that she's leading the government, The Republicans control the House, and that's because Bobert's there. It's a thin margin. She's got a lot of power. If something happens wrong in the 2024 election, like she wins again, God forbid. God, this is my prayer during this day's of awe. Don't let Megha win. Don't let Bobo win. I don't want to be governed by people like this. It's a ticket to disaster, but we have allies. A lot of smart people see right through Lauren Boebert, and I worry for their health. Kyle Clark, what a great guest he was, episode 100. Episode 100 was fantastic because Kyle Clark was on, and he spoke from the heart, and how it gets tough to do this kind of job. I don't have anywhere near the kind of job he does. And that's okay. My audience is so much smaller. Kyle Clark is the most impactful, important journalist in Colorado. And if you don't believe me, listen to episode 100 and realize that he's raised, what is it, over 10 million now for charities every week. And he chips in 250 of his own. People love that guy. It's a blessing that he's in Colorado, but he's not perfect. He's not infallible. Last week, I gave him a little grief over his analysis of the Jenna Ellis situation. And I'm close to these things. And I know Dan Kaplis, and he can't listen every day, Kyle Clark, to Dan Kaplis. And he may have been in preparation on Monday afternoon before he heard Dan Kaplis say, as I played earlier, that this was completely out of character for Lauren Boebert. Kyle Clark said this in a good commentary, but whenever you go over the top, like Jenna Ellis said, the election was rigged and everybody knows it. That's what she said on Dan Kaplis. And for Kyle Clark to say, everybody knows that this was in character for Lauren bobert Well, not Dan Kaplis, not according to what he said. Well, listen to Kyle Clark, because it's a good commentary, but for that.
6: Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert's recent performance of sorts that got her thrown out of the theater in Denver was a lot of things, but it wasn't a surprise. I haven't seen a single person say why I am shocked that Lauren Boebert was rude, disruptive, and belligerent. This is, after all, the congresswoman who suggested that a Muslim colleague was a suicide bomber. I haven't seen anyone surprised that Boebert did not tell the truth about what happened. Because, I mean, days before, we just fact-checked her latest false claim about migrants. I haven't seen anyone say that it was out of character for the Congresswoman to appear to berate theater staff members who were just trying to do their jobs. Really, the only surprise in all of this is that Bobert, once she got caught, apologized and said that she didn't live up to her values. What? I mean, when, when Bobert didn't know that the cameras were watching, she was exactly who she is when she does know people are watching. Boebert reportedly asked the theater staff, don't you know who I am? Yes, we do.
1: Brilliant commentary from Kyle Clark. I have to get him back on Craig's Colorado Corner. I'm going to pair him up with somebody special. I have it in mind. I have a great list of guests, including Jane Feldman, coming up. And I talk about football occasionally. We did that with Marty Lenz and uh, Jordan Hedberg in a great Craig's Colorado corner, Got reacting right after the Broncos' opening loss. I ridiculed Sean Payton. I don't think he's a great coach. I think he's a carpetbagger. Russell Wilson hasn't lived up to all expectations. And what do I know about the Broncos? Everything. I've been watching them all my life. Okay, I don't remember Frank Capuca, but I remember almost everything else after that. I've rarely missed a game, most of the time, right there at Mile High Stadium. Dan Kaplis and I were a big part of that Tim Tebow story. Kaplis fell in love with Tebow, and I thought, what the hell? Kyle Orton wasn't taking us anywhere. It was a terrible start to the season, and I started peppering John. Fox, the coach of the Broncos at press conferences, when are you going to play Tebow? I would show up for stuff like that. I had a press pass and it was fun. Anyway, Tebow came on the field and the Broncos started winning, but Tebow was erratic, although he did win a playoff game and had over 300 yards that game. And he threw a pass to Demarius Thomas. He was sensational until people concluded he can't throw that well. And After numerous tryouts with other teams, he just didn't make it. He was an interesting guy, committed to his faith. I read his autobiography, and he loves the Lord, his God, with all his heart, with all his might, and all his soul. And these words, which I commend you this day—anyway, I'm reciting from the Shema and the Be'ahavta, and that was part of his book, so he's an Old Testament guy, too— course he embraces the New Testament and Jesus Christ and Dan Kaplis embraces him back which leads me to the question why doesn't Dan Kaplis embrace Russell Wilson back? Russell Wilson such a committed Christian. Russell Wilson so accomplished a quarterback. Russell Wilson dual sport athlete like Deion Sanders. Russell Wilson Great representative of African Americans. He kept his virginity till he married a beautiful lady. They have wonderful kids. They're living in Colorado. And what is there not to love about this committed Christian, Russell Wilson? And even though the Broncos had a rough start, did you see his stats from the last game? Not bad. He wasn't the problem. The defense gave up so many points. Russell Wilson. Threw beautiful deep balls. 18 for 32, 308 yards, three touchdowns, one interception. Anyway, let's get the reaction of Dan Kaplis after that disappointing loss in the second game. The Broncos now 0-2. I expect, especially during these days of ah, the holiday season for Jews. I know not for Christians, but there's Christian charity all the time. Let's hear how Dan Kaplis treats Russell Wilson. Will it be similar to the way he treated Tim Tebow? Let's give a listen.
2: With the Broncos, just a quick, I told you so. I love this coaching staff. I'm very optimistic about the future, obviously, who could not love the ownership group. Uh, But it's not going to happen with Russell Wilson. And don't blame Russell, great man, great Hall of Famer, but... uh, but it's not going to happen with him. He's he's not able to or willing to run as much as he used to, and, and therefore it's just not going to happen with him. Throw in a defense that isn't what we all hoped it would be and thought it would be. Yeah, I think if you can get something significant for him in a trade with Chicago or New York or somebody who desperately needs a quarterback right now, I think you just move on.
1: Wow. Ain't that something? It's not just the demeaning of Russell Wilson, and that's a debatable subject, but I think most people would agree that he's better than Tim Tebow, except he has different complexion and a different complexion than that coaching staff, Sean Payton. I ripped him on Craig's Colorado Corner. Why does that old white dude have that job? Didn't he do Bounty Gate at New Orleans? Why did they hire a guy with a checkered pass like that? I don't like it. And I don't love the ownership group. What a bunch of Walmart billionaires, conservatives, Condi Rice, their token owner. She didn't put in money. She put in her name. And anyway, Dan Kaplis can love who he loves. But I'm also going to confront mega propaganda. And I'm always going to confront bigotry. And I'm always going to welcome anybody with straight facts who will tell the truth about things. Double standards are bad. Jane Feldman's been consistent her whole life. She's fascinating in the inner sanctum of Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, Act 5 attorneys where we speak out, and boy, does Jane Feldman. And then I have a magnificent Yom Kippur talk with our troubadour, Dave Gunders, who has wisdom. That's what I pray for right now is wisdom. Wisdom over power. That's the key to us going forward, and hopefully some changes underway we will get to that. And I think that something we don't understand is at work, and I try to understand it every Yom Kippur. So does Paul Simon in his beautiful new song, Seven Psalms, about a Jewish guy wrestling with inevitable end of his life. That's what happens but while we are here, let's live to the fullest. Let's not be afraid to call out double standards when we see it, but let's try to do it with kindness. I'm going to try to be kind as much as possible. I'm grateful for all the great people who have seen the truth about and who speak up against it, even though the would-be president has pledged retribution. It's frightening that our fellow citizens don't turn against him just based on that. I hope that, uh, what's that expression? Something gets removed from their eye. And my eye, too. I don't have all the wisdom, but I'm trying my best. This show is magnificent. Thanks for listening. Jane Feldman is fascinating. I think you will agree. Oh, my God, the name dropping we do, the people she worked with, the lessons she's learned. And Dave Gunders, his song, When I Die, it's profound. Take him down to the muddy water. Enjoy this show, please. It's on me. Episode 171. May it be worthy of your listening. Thank you. Uh, LLC.com.
0: Now back to The Fred Silverman Show.
1: Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig. 303-734-7156. 303-734-7156. I am Craig. Craig Silverman. A voice for victims.
7: Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Please enjoy the Inner Sanctum.
1: Oh my gosh, another opportunity to open up the inner sanctum reserved for Act 5 attorneys within Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Jane Feldman, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. First, we have to make sure you are qualified. When did you become a lawyer? Well, I took the bar in the summer
5: of 1981, and I was sworn in officially in March of 1982 in New York and then in October of 89 in
1: Colorado. Okay, you qualify. Just by getting (laughs) in there in 1982, I actually was in a more progressive state, Colorado. I graduated (laughs) law school. I got to take the bar. But you are in. You are in your fifth decade of practice, and we expect complete candor. And I will demonstrate the collegiality that happens when you get to this stage of our life. I'm sorry the surroundings are not better. If you listen to my old radio show, and I know I did, I created Craig's Lawyer's Lounge with a team of paralegals who would bring people whatever they wanted. But then the pandemic came, I had to lay some people off. Everybody had a new operation. But I want you to think throughout this interview, Jane, about what we might do to dress up this inner sanctum, because so far I've only (laughs) had dudes, okay? I need a female touch, and let's go back to your birth. When you were born, (laughs) a female in what city?
5: So I was actually born in Poughkeepsie, New York, which is about an hour and a half north of the city, New York City. My family at that point had a weekend house not too far from Poughkeepsie. So I was born in the summer. So I was born in Poughkeepsie, but basically lived in New York City until I was 33 years old. Okay. Tell
1: us about your parents.
5: Um, So my parents, uh, my father was the son of... um, Immigrants from what is now Ukraine, they were from towns across the Dnieper River. If anyone is paying attention to the news, the Dnieper River is, or the Dnipro, is about, uh, so they grew up in towns about 50 miles south of Kiev. Actually, the town my grandfather grew up in is called Kremenchuk, was bombed because there's an oil refinery there. But anyway, they immigrated to the United States in 1906. And my father was born in 1919 and grew up in the Bronx, went to Columbia College and Columbia Law School, served in the U.S. Army in the JAG Corps during World War II. That's my father, my mother. Okay,
1: Let's not leave your father quite yet, because you're talking about that part of Ukraine that was the pale of settlement where Jews could live in relative peace until the pogroms got so bad they chased my ancestors and your father's Feldman side of the family right to the right. promised land of America.
5: Actually, my grandmother and I, she died when I was only 10, but I remember she would talk about things like, you know, it it was between the second and third pogrom, you know, that was how she identified the year something happened. Why? You know, um, and she was from a town called Cherkassi, which is on the other side of the river from Kremenchuk. Although they met, interestingly, in Berlin, my grandfather was a member of what was known as the Jewish Bund, which became kind of the Menshevik side of the Russian Revolution. If I don't know how familiar you are with the Russian the 1905 Russian Revolution.
1: I but- know a little about it. I'm reading the biography <laughs> of Ayn Rand. And if I don't, if I recall right, it was a bunch of progressives had a revolution, but then some radicals led by Lenin kind of overtook that revolution. And we were off exactly. to the races with uh, communism. Yeah. So that's what our ancestors fled. Right. So my grandfather actually fled
5: Russia on a phony passport because Jews were not allowed to have passports. And my grandmother was studying to be a dental assistant in Berlin. Um, and they met kind of in the Russian Jewish community in Berlin. Oh,
1: so then you get a little German Jew in you, right?
5: Well, no, I mean, they, they you know, they were not Germans. They just lived there for oh, right. about a year
1: But it will become relevant as we continue with your story, because I know where you're going, and you're one of the most fascinating people, (laughs) just individually, but your lineage fascinates as well. (laughs) And I'm fascinated by New York City and uh, the legendary Morgenthau family, if ever there was a, a famous prosecutor, famous Jewish influence, cabinet secretary to Roosevelt, all of that. I know where this story is going, but let's not short trip your mother. Tell us all about her.
5: So my mother uh, was born in Grand Junction, Colorado. She was not Jewish. Her father was an engineer on the Denver Rio Grande Railroad. And I believe, you know, went between Denver and Grand Junction, you know, was his route. He had been actually born in Iowa, but. He was one of 10 children, like seven boys, and they all went to work for the Denver Rio Grande Railroad. I mean, that was a good job for somebody without a lot of education. So my mother grew up in Grand Junction. It was a very small world to her in the 1930s, I guess. She did a year at Mesa, what was then Mesa Junior College, and begged and pleaded and finally convinced her parents to go to the University of Colorado at Boulder, um, which she did for three years and graduated, I guess, in 1942. She didn't really know what she wanted to do, but she didn't want to go back to Grand Junction. And she had a professor who suggested that she apply to the, she was interested in public affairs and labor unions And she had a professor who suggested that she apply to the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. that she had never heard of. And she got a fellowship to live in Washington for a couple of years. My guess is that they'd never had someone from Grand Junction. And then she moved to New York City to get a master's in industrial labor relations at Cornell. And she met my father at a party. So they came from
1: very, very different backgrounds. And, and that was more controversial back in the day. How did they resolve it? What was the attitude about that mixed marriage, if I can be so bold within this <laughs> inner well, sanctum?
5: I mean, I think that my mother's family, you know, who were very politically and socially conservative, were not thrilled about it. But I have to say my father was very charming and handsome and, you know, he and as my mother would say she was 26 years old her parents didn't really have much to say about it i think my my father's parents were concerned that she wasn't jewish but she actually grew very very close to them and she was fascinated by their story and by their
1: history so they they grew very close to her was the feldman side of the family very religious Not at all. So as I
5: said, my parent, my grandparents were socialists. And so although they were culturally very Jewish, they were not religious. I mean, even my father was not bar mitzvahed. And as a small child, we didn't really even go to services on the high holidays, but we never went to school or to work. It was a family day, but I don't remember going to services with them.
1: Wow, that's fascinating.
5: Yes, so uh, so so they were actually very active in an organization called Workman's Circle, which still exists. Which was also kind of from the progressive, very leftist, kind of Jewish. Right. World. But I, I'm
1: trying to understand those that that lineage. Were they did they care whether or not your dad married a non Jew? Was it relevant? So the, You know, I asked later, you know, I asked my
5: parents at some point and my father said that they were concerned, you know, that and I think that they were concerned that he would lose his sense of Jewish identity. But she basically kind of, I mean, she did not grow up in a religious household either. So she basically just kind of adopted
1: their patterns and culture. I know. I'm trying extent. to think about the, your dad's parents and they wanted right, to, right. him to keep a Jewish identity. And I'm wondering right. why.
5: Um well, you know, I think it was very important to them. Um and I and it was very important to my father, although my father actually had a lot of conflict about not so much about being Jewish, but I think he had a lot of you know, he wanted to make it in the wasp East Coast American world. But and so I think that their concern was that he would kind of lose that. He told me once that his big fear was that we would identify as half Jewish. And I've never said I was half Jewish. Okay. I've always said, you know, I've always said I'm Jewish, even though you know, in a lot of in more conservative and orthodox traditions. I'm not
1: technically. I think people can be what they want to be, right? Go where they want to go. That's my hippie lifestyle. But well,
5: I I mean, I agree. And that's kind of the reform and reconstructionist view. But, you know, I do know that I think I would have difficulty uh, going to Israel on the right of return. Not that I'm planning on
1: doing that, but I think I would (laughs) have difficulty. We'll save that for the end of the conversation. But uh, you are fascinating and you are so candid about these things. (laughs) Tell everybody the names of your mom and your dad.
5: So my mother's name was Janet Cutting, C-U-T-T-I-N-G, and my father's name was Justin Feldman. Now
1: Justin Feldman was a big man. He was a macher and uh, <laughs> a macher in New York City. So a br- little bit a brag little bit. on your dad. Um, How did he become a big shot?
5: You know, I mean, it's funny because my siblings and I have talked about that a lot. You know, I mean, here here he was, this son of immigrants, and yes, he he went to Columbia and Columbia Law School. You know, which was an introduction to you know a, a different, a wider world. But after the war, he got involved in an organization called the American Veterans Committee, which was kind of a young organization that was lobbying essentially for benefits for, for veterans, the GI Bill and, and things like that. And in through that organization, he met a lot of kind of you know, sons of prominent people, which was an entree into um, Democratic
1: Party politics in New York. Okay, start dropping names. Like who?
5: Well, so you mentioned Robert Morgenthau. He met Robert Morgenthau in 1946 through the AVC. He met Franklin Roosevelt Jr., who uh, and then actually moved to Washington to become his administrative assistant when Franklin became a congressman. Somehow or other, he met a man. And actually, this would not have been through ABC. And I don't know whether it was through the Roosevelt connection or another connection. But he met a man named James Landis, who had been dean of the Harvard Law School and was very close to the Kennedy family. And he became a law partner with James Landis. And James Landis later was prosecuted for not filing his income taxes. But He was very close to Joe Kennedy, the father of the president. And so I think that introduced
1: him into that world as well. Holy cow. And your father, did he work at a big law firm or what? No. So
5: initially he started, he was a partner at a small law firm, which when I was a child was called Landis Feldman, Riley and Acres. Jim Landis was the was the Landis. And that firm later merged with another firm and became Paletti, Frieden, Prashker, Feldman, and Gartner. And that film firm kind of dissolved in, I want to say, the mid '80s. And at that point, he joined a larger firm, which is now Cooley God- Goddard. But
1: you know, but until but that was a very late in his career. All right. I guess I'm just trying to be a nosy guy and wonder how you grew up. Did you grow up paycheck to paycheck, upper middle class, upper class, (laughs) on the edge of upper class? It's like my (laughs) golf game. I said, you know, I was pretty good at golf. (laughs) I was just good enough to see a lot of really good golfers play and then realized that, you know what I mean? So were you adjacent to wealth or were you wealthy yourself?
5: I I mean, I would say we were adjacent to wealth. I did go to a fairly, in New York, a well-known all-girls private school.
1: What's it called if it's well-known?
5: The Brearley School.
1: Okay. Thank God it's not that Epstein School. What was that, the Dalton School or something? No, that's
5: Dalton. No, no, which is co-ed. No, this was all girls. And so I went to you know, I mean, it's funny because my perception was that my family wasn't wealthy at all. But when I look back on it, you know, we had a house in the country. We went on vacations. You know, we learned to ski. So we were obviously probably higher upper class. Than where, I. where did you live in Manhattan? So when I was first a child, you know, when I was a little child, we lived up by Columbia at 115th and Riverside. Interestingly enough, in the same building that if you watch the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, at one point, she says she lives at 4, 425 Riverside Drive. And I'm like, oh, my God, I lived at 425. But um, but it wasn't that building. And then when I was seven, we moved for a brief period of time to 90th and Park Avenue. And then for most of my childhood, we lived at 24th and 9th Avenue in a area called Chelsea, which now is very chic, but was not
1: at the time. And uh, what floor? You didn't have a house there, did you?
5: No, no. We lived on the 20th floor, which was the penthouse.
1: Okay. Now we're talking.
5: <laughs> well, I mean, it was a rental, but actually the apartment had been, so the apartment building was owned by a man named by the Scheuer family, The Scheuer's are a very prominent German Jewish family. James Scheuer was a congressman for many years, and they owned the building. And so my parents initially, they, Jim Scheuer was a friend, and we initially moved into their apartment when he was elected to Congress. And it was, I don't think it was, I don't think, my mother lived there for 35 years. I don't think that was
1: ever the plan, or maybe 45 years. What about your plan? Did you always plan to be a lawyer?
5: You know, pretty much, although I wanted to go into the Foreign Service, and I really, and my parents had a friend who was, who had been an ambassador. He was not a career person, but he had been a political appointee in several Democratic administrations, and he told me to go to law school if I wanted to go into the
1: foreign service. So where did you or, go where'd you go get your higher education?
5: My law school or my college? Both. So I went to for to college, I went to Wesleyan Uni- University in Middletown, Connecticut, which when I first moved to Denver, people would say, oh, isn't that the old the all girls school outside of Boston where Hillary Clinton goes, went, and I'd say, no, that's Wellesley, but I have to say I'm younger than Senator Hickenlooper, but older than Senator
1: Bennett, but they both went to West. I know they did. What <laughs> is there, a cabal there? um How big in school is that place?
5: Um When I was there, about 2,500, I did not, you know, I, Hickenlooper was getting a master's my freshman year, but I didn't know him, but right. I knew what you know, once he became kind of known, people were like, Oh, yeah, you remember him. He was on campus when we were there. And
1: wow, know, I, I bet you know him now. But where did you go to law school? We have to make sure you're actually entitled to be in this inner sanctum. Where did okay, you go? So at? I
5: went to Yeshiva Univers- to the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law,
1: nice. uh, which is
5: part of Yeshiva University.
1: Are there special studies in Jewish law at that law school?
5: Yes. I mean, there is a whole, there are lots of classes on Jewish law and lots of, you know, I didn't take them. That was not my interest. It was a very interesting place for me, though, because having grown up primarily in a pretty waspy world, about half the student body at that point, maybe a third, were Orthodox and, you know, Sabbath observers and kept kosher. And I had never known anybody (laughs) who, who, you know, did that. And I had a close friend who invited me one time to Shabbat at his house, at his parents' house in Williamsburg. And we had to get there at like three because we couldn't travel on the Sabbath. And I asked his mother how I could help. And she assigned me the job of ripping toilet paper. For what purpose? Because you can't do that on the Sabbath.
1: i oh, so you were the Shabbos guy.
5: Well, no, I mean, I mean, she. Would have done oh oh it. no, I mean, oh, you no, you were a Jew. The...
1: Oh, you, you had to right, get no, that you work done. To the but
5: toilet paper before sundown and made a stack so that on on. No, time out, time Shabbat... out.
1: Now I'm starting to understand this. <laughs> Are you telling me? And I've been a Jew, a <laughs> uh, holy cow, for a long time. And I never knew that really Orthodox Jews won't even do the minimal work of unspooling toilet paper on Shabbat. Well, that's, I can't speak for
5: all Orthodox Jews. I can tell you that was the, that was what Mrs. Finkelstein
3: asked (laughs) me to do,
5: was to take the toilet paper, the roll of toilet paper, unroll it, and Cut it in three or four, you know, squares or whatever. And put it so near the there toilet? Stack.
1: Yes, near the toilet. Did she tell you right. how to line it up? I think I just made a stack. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, then, and then how did dinner go?
5: Oh, I mean, it was, you know, she knew that I was not religious. I'm sure her son, Saul, had told them that whole story. And it was, it was fascinating to me because I had been to Shabbat dinners, but never to an ultra-Orthodox Shabbat dinner.
1: Fascinating that you dance between those two worlds. But one thing that had to determine your fate is just like for me, my last name, your last name, identified right. as Jewish 99% of the time. And it sure right. is correct for me and kind of correct for you, but not totally yeah. correct. So yeah. I mean, I mean, you're 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 a full Jew, as we've already covered. But it's <laughs> even even if you wanted to be a Christian, people saying your name is Feldman, right, right. But you're proud of it, and so am I. That's I why. am
5: proud of it. I am proud of it.
1: I never thought of myself as a Christian, or even as half Christian. These are the days of awe, and I think it's awesome when somebody makes that choice. I mean, for me. I was just born a Jew, so it was no choice day for me. But my my wife made the decision to become Jewish before we got married, and it was a beautiful thing. And it's got to be what's in your heart or not. And my goodness, why would anybody be Jewish given all the threats that are out there? Even as we speak, I listen to Keith Oberman. I recommend him, even though I'd like all of your podcast time, but. Listen to me, at about 1.7 speed, 1.75, I think that's perfect. Oberman, about 1.25 every night in Colorado, he delivers, and I don't know if you heard this, Jane, but you're prolific on Twitter, and I posted there, <laughs> the statements of Donald Trump about Jewish people, and what we have to right. do on Rosh Hashanah, and I saw wake that. up I saw that. before it's too late, and... Holy crap. I've never seen right. anything more anti-Semitic. And I won't even try to compete with Oberman. Go to his show uh, on uh, right after Rosh Hashanah. That's another insult for him to do it now during the days of awe. And right. that's why you are a proud Jew, Jane, because you well, are I mean, upset he- about this just like me.
5: Well, that post, um, you know, he he starts by saying, you know, real liberal Jews can't be Democrats because of Israel. And then he says, oh, you know, goes on about you have to support me. And then he says, oh, yeah, Happy New Year. I mean, on the one of the holiest days of the Jewish calendar, he makes it all about himself.
1: You lived in New York City till you were 33. You got to observe the guy, read about him. Did you ever encounter mm-hmm. him in your travels? What was your impression?
5: I mean, I never encountered him personally. I never met him. I encountered him in a couple of ways. Um, I had a friend from high school who did some work for him, you know, Trump paid him like 80% of what the contract was for and my friend sued him and won but then spent thousands of dollars trying to enforce the judgment and that was probably in the early
1: 80s now that now also, come on that's just probably an isolated case i'm sure he pays people well, time. Th- no i'm just teasing he right, he's, he's been, been sued, sued so many over
5: times over 2000 yes, times it's my they sister kill actually has a friend who um, does commercial lighting and similar story. Trump paid him like 80%. The The guy went to a lawyer and this he said, yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, he owes you the money, but the
1: litigation will cost you more than the money you're owed. There's a great book called Plaintiff in Chief because that guy sues and it chronicles all his litigation, but... Were you able to size them up long before I did? And Oh, say- yeah.
5: So, I mean, this was in the early 80s when when my friend had these issues. And then I also had kind of a friend of a friend of a friend. So somebody I didn't really know, but I had met, called me because she had been uh, essentially, she had met Trump at a party. She was a young, very attractive woman trying to break into acting as many people in Manhattan are. And he she met him at a party and she was talking and he said, well, let's meet for a drink. And this is sort of as best as I can remember the story. And so he, she met her for him for a drink. She got up to go to the bathroom. When she got out of the bathroom, he was there. He pushed her back into the bathroom and assaulted her in a manner very similar to Eugene Carroll's story, except she was able to get away. And so my friend, she told her friend who called me because I was working at the Manhattan DA's office at the time. And she said, what should she do? I said, she should call the cops. I mean, this is an attempted rape. And, you know, I ended up talking to her and explaining what the process would be. And she was too scared. And this was probably 83, 84. She just didn't end up doing anything about it. Holy so I
1: cow. have hated him ever since then. Yeah, I don't blame you. The stories we hear as prosecutors, their public figures in Denver where I've heard allegations and yet you can't file charges just based on allegations. You and I were doing the same thing back in the early 80s as a prosecutor. I thought it was cool to be a Denver DA. Dale Tooley, to a lot of people, reminded them of Morgenthau. We had a culture. The family still keeps going with Beth McCann and all of that. You came right. to Colorado, you know about it, but we're not. Right. Pat
5: we're, is actually a good friend of mine.
1: So you know what I mean? There is a legacy in Denver that might be modeled after what you know about the Morgenthau family. To right. me, right. When, when you drop names, it just doesn't get bigger than Morgenthau. And I bought this book by Andrew Meyer, and it it starts with, The ancient uh, DA Morgenthau, because he served so long and he just passed away around age 100, you could tell us all about him. But this book starts off with the relationship between Morgenthau and Trump and how Trump tried to cultivate that relationship for obvious reasons. But Morgenthau at the end sized him up. But I turn the stage over to you, blended together, Morgenthau, Trump, and Jane Feldman. I mean,
5: I don't, you know, I don't know. I was never in the um, investigations division, which investigates frauds and racketeering and that sort of thing. So uh, it is a little mind boggling to me that Morgenthau would have. I mean, I know that there are people who say Morgenthau kind of gave him a pass. And I've also heard it about Morgenthau's suge- uh, successor, Sy Vance, who, was an assistant with me, so I know Cy very well. I can't believe either one of them would give Trump a pass if if the evidence was there. You know, Morgenthau went after some very prominent people like Clark Clark Clifford, right, who had been Secretary of Defense and a very well-respected judge in New York, I mean, so it it would not be like him to not prosecute people because they were rich and famous.
1: So, now not to violate the collegiality of Craig's lawyers' lounge, especially the inner sanctum, but I need to point out that the Morgenthau's are like family to you. Am I right?
5: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, they were growing up, so I don't remember not knowing uh, Robert Morgenthau. He ran for governor in 1962. And my father was his campaign manager. His daughters, Ann and Jenny, babysat for me. His son, Bob, is my age, and we hung out a lot together. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I would say family, but, you know, they were very close at certain
1: points in my life. Yes. Right, but close enough for you call him Bob or Bobby. Instead of Robert. Well, I call his
5: son Bobby, and then I get
1: corrected because Bobby is like sixty-six years old. But you grew up with his family. Your dad. But I grew up
5: with his family. Yes.
1: Did they live nearby? Did you go to their family retreat that I'm reading about in this epic book? So when I told you in the
5: beginning that that I was born in Poughkeepsie because my family had a house near there, so did the Morgenthau's. That's the house that you're reading about that was near Hyde Park. So, yes, I went to that house, you know, a few times growing up. And then later when I was an assistant DA, he had an office picnic there every year. So, yeah,
1: I've I've been to that house many times. Time out. You can't just say Hyde Park and let it go. Did you ever go over there? So Hyde Park, the, where the president's house, you know, is now a national Franklin Delano Roosevelt
5: Hyde Park, right? Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Hyde Park. Um, there's a town of Hyde Park, which is where his house is. You know, that's now a national park. So every, anybody can go there. I did go there a couple of times. As I said, my father, my parents were very close to Franklin Roosevelt Jr., um, who also had a house kind of in Dutchess County near the Morgenthau's and near us. So I did go to official functions at Hyde Park as a child with the Roosevelt family. I mean, not
1: obviously the president was dead, but with the children. Holy cow. Now I'm starting to see the power (laughs) source of the country. It was in that farmland of what, Dutchess County up there? Everybody had a property. You all got together and divided up how the world was going to run or what?
5: (laughs) Well, I mean, except for Bob Morgenthau, you know, Franklin was a congressman and then he was defeated for governor twice and, uh, you know, never really had a that successful of a, um, a
1: political career. Well, but, let's go back to Morgenthau because that guy okay. was D.A. for about a gazillion years. Did he set a record? How long was he the D.A. in Manhattan? And did anybody talk about term limits? I don't think so. They had too much power. Nobody talked about term limits, but he became DA in
5: 1975, I think. And then I want to say he retired in about 2010. The interesting thing is that there is a tradition in Manhattan for long service as DA. I mean, in my lifetime, there had only been, I mean, now there have been four DAs, counting Alvin Bragg, but, you know, Thomas Dewey was DA from in the 30s and the 40s, and then Frank Hogan was DA in the 50s and the 60s, and then Bob Morgenthau in the 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, so, and in some ways, I think that it, it made the office stronger, We had very strict rules about being involved in politics. We were not allowed to make um, campaign contributions or to be active in politics. And I remember, you know, I had one case, which the more I investigated, the more I thought that the defendant was the wrong guy. And I went and presented all of this to him. And he said, well, why would we indict then? And I said, well, I'm just telling you, I don't think we should indict, uh, but, you know, this case has gotten a lot of publicity in the neighborhood, so there may be a lot of pushback. So he turned to me and he smiled and said, so you're telling me I'm going to be reelected with 93%
1: of the vote instead of 94%. Wow. (laughs) Now, that's Um, that's like a scene from Law and Order. Is that show accurate? Right. Well,
5: I mean, you know, I think that the first, what was it, Adam Schiff, you know, not the congressman was based to a certain extent on, on Morgenthau because he was like that, you know, I mean, he was like, I don't really, and then probably in the late eighties, you know, before I left, there started to be people running. I mean, there was a, a prominent African-American, um, defense attorney who, Challenged him. There was a judge who challenged him and basically ran on the fact he's too old and we need, we need change. But I think until that point, nobody had ever really challenged him. And part of that, I think, was the tradition that, you know, it had been Frank Hogan for many, many years and Thomas Dewey for many, many years. So the idea of changing DAs every eight or 12 years was a foreign concept.
1: Mm -hmm. How long did you remain a prosecutor there? I was there almost eight and a half years. Well, that's a good long stay. Now, do some name dropping. Who are famous prosecutors that we might know who are your colleagues?
5: Well, so I was there in the era of what I call famous sons of famous fathers. So
1: is that um, another oh, word for nepotism? Keep going.
5: Probably. I mean, you know, so there were DAs there. I mean, Cy Vance I mentioned, uh, who later became the DA, the elected DA, but at the time, you know, his father was obvious had was not Secretary of State anymore, but you know had been Secretary right. of State. Andrew Cuomo was there when I was there. Bob Kennedy, now running for president. And John Kennedy was there, although I only overlapped with John for about six months. Dan Rather, son of Dan Rather, was there. I'm trying to think what other prosecutors, you know, and then people who were
1: very well known in the prosecutor community, but not. Like who? I mean, I'm very impressed by Karen Friedman Agnipilo. She's on a podcast. like Agnipilo. I'm going to try to get her on. It would help if I pronounced her name right. Maybe you can give me the contact. Karen Friedman Agnifilo. She's magnificent. She's smart as hell. Did she help run the office? I
5: don't know Karen at all. I obviously know a lot of people who know
1: her, but I didn't know her at all. Is there anybody else you see that you go, whoa, that person is smart. I can rely on that person like I do with Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Am I close? Agnepilo Agnifilo. Okay, I'll get it. Um
5: you know, and as I said, I've never met her. Um I mean, there were some really, I mean, there was a guy who tried a lot of the high profile press cases named Greg Waples
1: when I was there, who was very well thought of. I just think it's so cool the prosecute in New York. I mean, you would take a subway to a crime scene to look at it? What was it like? Oh
5: no. Oh no. So I lived in an apartment when I was a DA for most of my time as a DA, I lived in an apartment building with a doorman. And uh, so the way it works in New York, I assume it still works this way is when you got about four or five years under your belt, you, you went on something called the homicide chart. And if, The police wanted to make an arrest in either a homicide or a high profile case. Uh, They called the DA on call and you were on call for 24 hours from 8 a.m. to 8 from 8 a.m. to 8 a.m. And I was on call, you know, after I'd been on call a few times, you know, and basically the detectives would come down and pick you up. I mean, because most of the calls would come at one o'clock in the morning Uh or something. And so my doorman at one point said, can I ask you a question? <laughs> you said, you know, every once in a while, like three o'clock in the morning, a police car shows up,
1: asks for you, you
5: get in and then you come back two hours later. What the heck do you do? For <laughs> <me?">
1: <laughs> and you get all dressed up like you're going right. Somewhere. And I'm all
5: dressed up at three o'clock in uh-huh. the morning because there was a process and not all defendants would agree. But. A surprising number
1: would we would videotape a confession with the DA. We had that equipment in Denver and I was on homicide duty, but they never came to pick me up. But I had an office car and I drive to the right. scene, a poor tourist. Yeah. I right. carried so, a police. I, mean, I, lived radio. In Manhattan
5: yeah. I didn't have a car. Right. You know, and I didn't want I didn't want to take That's a taxi. So,
1: um, so so tell us what you up. saw. What was the, the murder that sticks with you? Oh my God. This happened? Um, While you're thinking, once I got called to a parking lot, Club Temptation, near the old Stapleton Airport. And it was uh, two people shot dead in the parking lot. And I went there, and I met the detective Pennington. And I tried to stay out of the way. You know, if they had a warrant question, he said, well, we got two down. The guy got away. And then I was walking around, and I saw the two dead bodies. And then between some cars, I saw another body down. And I went to Pennington, I said, look, I'm not a detective. I think I was about eight years in at that point. I said, but I think there are three dead people. And sure enough, it wow. was a triple homicide. I ended up prosecuting that case and convicting a dude named Michael Casada. So that's my homicide duty story. Wow. Did you come up I with mean, one? I didn't
5: have any high-profile... Um, homicides. They were, you know, usually drug deals gone bad. Uh, several times where a police officer, so in in New York, at least then, if a police officer fired his
1: gun, well, that's the, 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 the homicide DA was, was called. Hey, let me ask you about that because you probably enforced that Sullivan Act and you probably have strong opinions about whether gun control worked or didn't work. It appeared to me from afar the, I was thinking, gosh, I wish Denver was more like New York City when it came to enforcing guns and people having them and misusing them. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, you know, so the, so
5: I was a DA in the high crime 80s. Um, you know, people talk about now being high crime. It was nothing compared to the 80s. But we took gun cases very, very seriously And, um, you know, you couldn't you couldn't get a gun in New York City unless really unless you were a retired police officer or a private detective. I mean, it was it was very hard to get a concealed carry permit.
1: Well, thank God God you helped you helped turn it around. I can't leave New York law enforcement without asking you about Rudy Giuliani and your impressions of him through time. You
5: know, so, you know, I was not living in New York when Rudy was mayor. I left right before he was elected, but he was U.S. attorney and we, the two offices did not get along well at all. I actually had a case. I was in the middle of a trial and the defendant was not produced from Rikers Island, the detention facility. And the judge is yelling at me, like, why wasn't he produced? And I, it, you know, I said, I have no idea. And it turns out he was a federal informant. Even his lawyer, his state lawyer didn't know. And they had produced him to testify in the federal grand jury. Uh, in when he was in the middle of a trial in my case. And um I was like, you know, I don't know what to do. And actually I talked to my boss and, and I was in the room and Morgenthau started screaming at Giuliani. Like you knew he had a state case and it never occurred to anybody on your staff to call and see who that case was assigned to and what the status of that case was. And, you know, so that was my only interaction. Oh my God.
1: What a great story. With the Southern
5: district at the time. Um, But I remember, you know, there was a big he had a big show of arresting two defendants on the floor of the wall of the stock exchange. And then those cases were later dismissed for prosecutorial misconduct and lack of evidence. But he ruined the reputation of those two
1: stockbrokers. Right. And again, you know, everybody remembers
5: that they were that they were arrested.
1: On the floor of the stock exchange. Well, you do. Because you lived in New York, you were part of that scene. That's why I I like Oberman because he lives in New York and he sized up Giuliani a long time ago. But thank God you got out of there at age 33. Tell everybody about your uh, legal career here in Colorado.
5: um, I do want to say one thing about when I say it was high crime in New York, because very few people in Denver believe me on this, but it's true. Uh, there The crime was so high that the that arrest to arraignment time was like a couple of days. So there was a lawsuit. And as a result of the settlement of the lawsuit, we were open as an office 24-7. I arraigned people at three o'clock in the morning.
1: <laughs> wow.
5: The judges were not happy. The DAs were not happy. The public defenders were not happy, but we did it.
1: We, we were having some problems in Colorado. Crime increased all over the country, late 80s, culminated in right. summer of violence, 1993. You might have already been here by then. Yeah,
5: I was here by 93. Yeah, I remember that because there was a shooting not too far from where I live. But so I moved to Colorado in, in October of 89. And I originally got a because I got a job with the Colorado attorney general's office in what was then called the criminal enforcement section special prosecutions unit and you know I just didn't you know I had gone from prosecuting homicides in New York City to prosecuting kind of misdemeanor tax fraud cases and I just it wasn't a very busy office I I I liked some of the people, but I
1: didn't really like my boss. Hey, who was your boss?
5: Oh, I don't want to name him. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh,
1: oh, are you talking about the AG or a lesser No, no. Boss? I was t- like my immediate supervisor. Oh, well, you um, didn't say who the AG was. We could look that up. You know. So
5: when I was originally hired, the AG was Dwayne Woodard.
1: I remember him.
5: And actually, although my politics are very different, I thought that Gail Norton was a much better, was a very good AG. You know, her first uh, chief deputy was Ray Slaughter. I'm sure you remember Ray Slaughter and Ray really um, you know, he kind of knew what he was like, this is ridiculous that you guys aren't busier. So it was better once, you know, Ray kind of was the chief deputy. I also, during that time I became A special assistant U.S. attorney to handle a joint Denver state federal prosecution of um, Crips bringing drugs into Colorado.
4: And
1: that was really fun. I loved that case and I loved doing that case. Well, someday we're going to have to go into all of that. But I don't want to leave without some politics because, you know, Alvin Bragg. I don't know if you know right. Alvin Bragg, but I don't, I don't know him personally, but but, but. but I, I just want to tap in because it's Yom Kippur. I'm not going to do my normal <laughs> Craig's Colorado Corner because that would interfere with the holiday. But I'll definitely want you as a panelist because I, I know from Twitter you have strong opinions about all these Trump's trials (laughs) and tribulations. Just start with New York City and Alvin Bragg, if you can give us some inside skinny.
5: You know, I mean, all I know is, you know, and I don't really, I think I only have one or two friends who are still there. I do know that when he came in, a lot of the longtime people thought that he was very, that he was being much too lenient on Uh, on cases. So for example, I'm sure this was the policy in Denver as well. You know, you offer a plea if it's rejected and you start a trial and the defendant wants to plead in the middle of the trial. It's not the same plea offer. Once you put on your case, he decided apparently that that was unconstitutional to change your plea offer. And because that, that was punishing the defendant for making you put your case on I don't know if he's backed away from that, but I talked to a friend of mine whose daughter is who was a D.A. with me, but her daughter is a D.A. And she was like, you know, I put on my whole case. And then, you know, Alvin said I had to offer the same plea bargain. It's kind of unfair to the
1: jury, too. And mean, it's kind
5: of unfair to the jury. So, you know, I think Alvin uh, and I shouldn't call him Alvin. I've never met the man. Um, but I you know, he may be backing away from some of that. So, um, he, you know, so I think, you know, I think it was even Cy Vance, you know, Morgenthau had been there for so long. And when Cy Vance came in, you know, and people knew him because Cy had been a, an assistant DA for Seven or eight years, he he overlapped with me most of my time there. He was a year behind me. Right, um, you it was know, it's part of it's, the family. It's sort of like Denver. He was part of the family. Right. He knew everybody. He, you know, he made changes, um, and he made personnel changes, which surprised some people. I'm like, of course, he made personnel changes.
1: It's like Denver. Beth McCann was part of the Dale Tooley family. When Bill Ritter and I walked in June 1, 1980 as interns, there was Beth McCann, already a district court deputy. Now she's announced she's stepping down, right. and we're probably going to get somebody outside of the family. What well, you're telling me, Alvin Bragg was a little outside the family, but hadn't he been in the office Well, so a little- I know
5: that even Cy Vance, who was inside the family, People pushed back on some of the changes he wanted to make. And I had a friend who called me and said, you know, you'll never believe Psy got, you know, basically want, you know, got demoted so and so and so and so and so and so. And I said, you know, so and so was a was a deputy, was a bureau chief, I mean, when in 1981, it's now two thousand and whatever you know, maybe it's time for him to become a senior trial counsel and let a younger person, you know, move up. Why is that such a terrible thing?
0: I um, so that. I know
5: that even Cy Vance got pushed back, even though he was part of the family. Um, and I think Alvin Bragg, you know, was never part of the family. And so some of the people, you know, kind of were not very welcoming to him. And then he totally changed a lot
1: of things, is my understanding. You know what? It is a young man's sport and people need to realize that. And so is being president. I watched Joe Biden give a speech at the UN and it was weak because he's old. I like Joe okay. It's not like he lost a fastball because he never really had one. I think he's doing a good job. But when are you too old? I mean, at the end, was Morgenthau too old? And did somebody have to tell him? I had to take the keys away from my grandma Goldie I mean, eventually that date comes for all of us. As my rabbi said on Rosh Hashanah, it made me laugh. Maybe it will for you. Richard Rhines, Temple Sinai said, I know I'm going to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens.
5: (laughs) You know, I think that Morgenthau, I think a couple things happened. You know, first, he was clearly getting very old. I mean, I had lunch with him in 2012. I mean, he was already, um, he had, I think he left in 2010, you know, he was an old man, you know, was born in 1919, but I think that he didn't want to give up the DA ship to someone who was not part of the family. And, you know, Cy left the DA's office, went to move to Seattle, Washington, Became a criminal defense lawyer, had a very successful practice in Seattle, and then moved back to New York and w- was a law partner of Morgenthau's son-in-law. So my sense, and I have no, this is just my hunch, is that, you know, it was the fact that it was Cy, a Vance, a former assistant, a partner of Paul Grant's. Um, you know, made him feel more comfortable about giving it up I know, because I that, was going to continue the
1: Right, I you know, get the tradition. it. But it's like Although, passing if you, down those estates in Dutchess County. I mean,
0: right? He, right. He, you
1: know, in the Act 5 attorneys in sanctum, we have to know when to hold them and when to fold them. And it's not right. easy for a trial lawyer and we talk candidly about it and we have to Think about Joe right. Biden. I mean, should he step off the stage? You you don't want Donald Trump any more than I do. Right. What what's right. the way to to win?
5: You know, I don't know. You know, I tell everybody I think Joe Biden is too old, but I think he's done a very good job as president mm-hmm. and I will vote for him. Me too. Because I will never vote for Donald Trump or any of the Republicans. Right, but
1: we need to be smart. Think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was smart in so many ways, but she should have stepped off the bench, right? She should have. She had cancer, and look what happened. So what's the smart move? And talk about the consequences of Roe v. Wade going bye-bye. I'm upset about it, but I'm not a woman. What about you? I mean,
5: I think it was huge, and I think And I think that, you know, it's like the Republicans had been gunning for this for decades. And now they realize, you know, 80 over 80 percent of Americans, men and women, support a woman's right to choose kind of with under the, the Roe framework or, or something similar.
1: Right, but what do those numbers mean anymore? Because we're about to lose our democracy. It's going to be the rule of the minority and tyranny. And I really believe that talked me down in our last five or 10 well, minutes. Well, I mean, I do.
5: I think if Donald Trump is reelected, um, yes, it is the end of our democracy. I do. I do honestly believe that. I think that the combination of all of these lawsuits, I do think the Bragg lawsuit is probably the weakest of all of them.
1: You know, right. So- we, we we have to count on Jack Smith and Tanya Chutkin, I trust, I like that right. federal judge. Well, I like but, her. You know, but
5: even Eileen Cannon, I mean, she has ruled against him. I know, but she, issue, she you know. wants
1: that case to go to trial like I want a hole in the head. Can you imagine? Right. And so forget right. about Florida happening. It's all USA beat Trump. I wrote a Colorado Sun column. Everybody yeah. get out of Jack Smith's way, don't you think, as a trial lawyer?
5: Yes. and 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 Alvin Bragg has said, Yes. You know, I'll, I'm i out of your way. Your right. case is much stronger mm-hmm. than mine. I mean, I think Jack Smith is really smart. I've read a lot of indictments in my time because in, in New York, all felonies are prosecuted by indictment. You know, I think
1: that was a it's a they're very skillful. No, he, he is. Now, you and I do a lot of writing on Twitter. I think it's kind of like writing out uh, the evidence against us when tyranny takes over. Okay, Silverman, did you tweet this? What about you, Ms. Feldman? Was this your tweet? You know, why, oh, why are I mean, we doing it? Why are we feeding our innermost thoughts to Elon Musk, who is clearly a bad guy?
5: Well, I mean, but I have nothing to lose. I'm not running for, you know, for anything. But I think Donald Trump doing it and then doing that interview. And, and I saw something on on Twitter this morning about, you know, he basically said that the Biden impeachment, that the reason, you know, is that they did it to him. Right. So he told the Republicans to do it to, to him,
4: well, to who did, Biden. It, who you know, know that? Like,
5: really, really, you know, and and, you know, t- uh, Trump keeps basically confessing to these crimes. I mean, he said something in one of the interviews, apparently the other day about something like um, I had an absolute right to take those documents in Florida and I had an absolute right to keep them even, even after they were subpoenaed, I think. Right. Well, no, you don't.
1: No, right. (laughs) Megan Kelly. You you do not
5: have an absolute right to keep documents that have been subpoenaed.
1: (laughs) Um, I know. Megyn you know, Kelly so can... confronted him and he said, yeah, I know. And then he said, oh, I, I I, don't think I know. I played that sound in my last episode. So the bottom line is Trump's a fool. He incriminates himself all the time. The key is to get him to trial. And he is a master of the continuance. What happens when somebody gets COVID the day of the trial? He'll, He'll get it on purpose. I mean, whatever to avoid a trial. I have never seen a person so bent on obstructing his own fate. It's just like me talking about, I don't want to be there when I die. He doesn't want to be at any criminal trial. And I, and he'll do everything in his power to stop it, don't you think? Right.
5: Yeah. And the question is whether Judge Chutkin will put up with it.
1: The question is whether our legal system can withstand it. And consider that he's going to pour money in from Saudi Arabia, Russia, The GOP is going to give the nomination. He's going to lie, cheat, use AI, use anything. Why not? He's battling for his freedom. It's a ridiculous, terrible situation as we are about to uh, confront Yom Kippur, which is scary enough. Talk me down from the ledge, Jane.
5: You know, I don't know if I can, um, because I do think that every, you know, we, We have to do what we did last time. I mean, I worked my butt off for for Joe Biden in 2020, you know, and I think we're going to have to continue to do it. I do think he looks awful and it would not surprise me if, you know, he has a massive heart attack
1: or something like that. Boy, who would be the ideal Democrat for you? Oh, God, I don't know. I don't know if God is a Democrat. It's got a Democrat. (laughs) So
5: I supported Elizabeth Warren, you know, three years ago, although my brother who lives in in Massachusetts told me that that was a mistake. Um, I think I you know, I like Kamala Harris. I like Pete Buttigieg. I think you know there are a lot of really strong Democrats there
1: who right and
5: let me let me you know, just stop you. I think, I think yeah. Dan Goldman. I mean uh-huh. he's a little you know I think he's an oh, up okay. and comer. Okay, now wait I'll-
1: a sec. That's part of your family too, right? They're rich. They have a farm up there. <laughs> Lehman family. Tell everybody, right. Congressman Dan Goldman. He's part of that Morgenthau crowd, isn't he? Sorta. Of.
5: Well, I mean, I don't know, you know, if he's part of that. You know, he grew up in uh, Washington, D.C., I think. But I think he's definitely part of that old German Jewish, our crowd, Jews, not not the not the pale of settlement Jews like you and I are. And frankly, you know, I mean, I don't know if he's ever going to be president of the United States, but I love Joe Neguse.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you have a personal relationship with him. He has a favorite name for you. Yeah, he calls me his favorite Twitter troll. How can people (laughs) track you on Twitter?
5: Um, I'm at JTF Denver, and I'm also on threads with the same handle.
1: Nice. I'm on threads at the Craig Silverman Show. I'm on Twitter at Craigs Colorado. But I have my misgivings. This battle between Musk and the Anti-Defamation League I was there a week ago for their civil rights award ceremony. Phil Weiser got a big award, and I think it was cool that you like Kamala Harris because you were in an AG's office and she was a California AG. Right. And she must have done a good job in your judgment, which matters. So, um, any- I mean, I you
5: know I don't know that much about her time as um, AG uh, in California, but I think it's the largest. You know, it's the second largest uh, prosecutor's office in the country behind the Department of Justice.
1: Right. And we didn't um, hear anything terrible. And she married a nice Jewish boy. So how bad and she married can she a nice
5: Jewish boy. So, you know, I, I think that the Democrats actually have a very good, you know, bench.
1: <laughs> Let us pray. Speaking of which, this is our Shabbat Shubba. Do you know what Shabbat Shuvah show is? It means it's the biggest Uh, Sabbath because it's between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, right. And then Yom Kippur, that's the big one, right? For me, for you, for Jews everywhere. What do you do?
5: So I go to Kol Nidre services the night before and to services on Yom Kippur. I don't always fast.
1: I I don't always make all those services, but I fast only because I can pig out so much the night before (laughs) that I don't feel like eating for 40 hours, let alone 25 hours. I can do it now that I'm older. So yeah, that's my Yom Kippur. But as they say, have an easy fast, even if you don't do it. And at our age, I don't think you have to, because we're in that Act 5, Attorney's Inner Sanctum. I so appreciate you coming on. I hope it was fun for you. it was
5: fun. Yes, it was was a lot of fun.
1: Yes, and a lot of great name dropping. Way to go. And (laughs) I did my part, too. Anyway, thanks so much, Jane.
5: All right. Talk to you soon.
1: Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. He's the best lawyer I know because he's my lawyer. He's Michael Bailey. I think you pioneered this mobile estate planning and lots of lawyers are doing it now. And boy, are your clients happy and satisfied. It's convenient for the client.
8: It certainly is fun to be able to go and visit people where they are, whether it's at your house or at one of the offices just to make it more convenient for you. And then it's more fun for me, because I get to go out and about and meet people all over the place and help them out.
1: What's the website, Michael?
8: It is mobileestateplanning.com.
1: What's the best phone number to call?
8: 720-394-6887 is my direct line.
1: Michael Bailey, that's our lawyer. Trish loves him, I do too. Thanks, Michael.
0: You're welcome, Craig.
1: Hey everybody, for all of your legal needs, why not start with me, 734-7156, 303-734-7156. I've been practicing law in Colorado for over 42 years, and I know a lot of people. And if I can't do right by you, I can steer you in the right direction. My number, 303-734-7156. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims, a voice for people with legal difficulties. Troubadour, these are the days of Ah, Yom Kippur is upon us. Are you ready to make total amends for the Day of Atonement?
7: I am as ready as I can ever be on this day.
1: Part of the process is an apology to anybody you've made feel bad or done wrong. That's right. If I did, I know my dogs, okay, I apologize for them. And I know I'm a bad owner occasionally. You can't
7: apologize for your dogs, Craig.
1: I apologize for any offense given throughout the last year.
7: Let me get my notebook here. I
1: pray for your forgiveness.
7: You always have my forgiveness. That's what friends are for.
1: Okay, I'm waiting.
7: Oh, for my my atonement? Yes,
1: yes. No, to apologize to me for anything you might have done.
7: Do you have something specific in mind?
1: I'll think on it. Well. See, you're flawless. No, I'm
7: not. I'm sure that I've slighted you in some way, somehow. And um, if that's so, get over it. Here's how you (laughs) slighted me. I mean, I'm sorry.
1: Here's how you slide me. You held out one of your greatest songs in the world. It slipped past my attention for a ridiculously long amount of time. And There I was on, I like Amazon Music because I get bugs there, Audible. They've got me trapped in their system. And your songs are laid out wonderful. So once I play one of your songs, sometimes I get a next song. And I said, what's this? Who's this artist? I never heard this before. And then there it is. My best pal, our troubadour, singing a song about when I die. We've never played that on this podcast. It's one of your best. I'm not dead yet. Don't you think it's perfect for a cool
7: It's probably, yeah, because it's pondering. Well, it starts off, my children asked me. I wrote this one when my girls were younger. And uh, you know, I think every father has that conversation with his children who who say, "What happens when when you die? You know, do you go to heaven? What's 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 it like afterwards?" They asked me, and I told them I didn't know, but it got me thinking, and so the song came of that. And how old were they when this happened? Well, this was like I think this was from Chopwood Carry Water, so it was probably like. Oh, a good 10 years ago. They were probably, you know, 9 and 11. Okay, don't you think like That's a
1: little traumatic to Sarah and Rachel hearing their dad say, hey, when I'm dead, take my dead corpse and put it in some muddy water. Right, Take it down to New Orleans. Put me in the mud.
7: <laughs> put me in the mud. I was thinking of ashes. I, I don't need them to take my... This isn't like, uh, what, what was it? The, uh, the uh, lone, uh, Lonesome Dove. Where at the end, at the end, the, his buddy takes him down back to, he has to take his salted corpse down back to Texas from Montana. I mean, no.
1: I've, I've heard of ashes <laughs> to ashes, dust to dust, but mud to mud.
7: I told the girls, I said, this is, you know, when I wrote the song, because they probably never read, they probably never listened to it, but maybe once. But uh, I told them that I liked the idea of a mandate that would get them together to do a road trip to New Orleans, because I told them they had to take my ashes down to New Orleans and throw and throw him in the muddy in the muddy Mississippi.
1: You're going to be cremated.
7: I don't
4: know. I mean, think I'll be dead. True. I don't know.
1: It's, it's almost Yom Kippur, and I'm pretty sure that God doesn't like cremation, according to our ancestors.
7: I think that that's probably has very little to do with what it's all about. That's right. You're someone's right. Someone's love for God, and I someone's, don't know. Yeah, no. I, it's a tradition. I don't think Jews traditionally. Uh, have have really uh, done no, there it, are much a lot with of cremation. Rules.
1: No, there's a lot of rules. You're supposed to be buried. You're supposed to be buried in a kosher cemetery.
7: Right, but who says they can't bury
1: your ashes? I think there are rules on that, but I'm not an authority, and I don't want to ponder death. Although that's kind of what we do in uh, our Kol Nidre, our Yom Kippur services. But I want to ponder something that you told me about. But I finally paid attention, and oh my God, I should have done it a long time ago. Who's our favorite? Well, I I don't want to quiz you, but I want to give you credit because this guy's almost as good a musician as you. His name's Paul Simon.
7: He's multiple leagues better than me, but go ahead. you
1: you read his book. I want you to go give it to me because I'm listening to it. I'd like to see the pictures too. Okay. Do you know how much you have in common?
7: Well, um, not bad. (laughs) <laughs> we're Jewish I mean, yes. he's a Jewish
1: guy he likes I don't think he's like he's growing up
7: he doesn't really I don't think he when people ask him about his religion I don't, he says he's really not a religious guy
1: oh my god I don't though. think he denies
7: his Judaism Seven as far Psalms as, right right that's his latest album well,
1: he doesn't deny being Jewish but wasn't his name Shulman and then his parents changed it to Simon it's kind of like you Gunderheimer and then before you came along it had been changed to Gunder it's Americanized right 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 And then he didn't really grow up playing, but once his baseball dreams ended, he was a good poet, and he came to it late, kind of. Well, well, you read the book, and anyway, I was thinking about him last week, because we were talking about you playing on Rosh Hashanah. He would definitely approve, and he has a line in that seven psalms, uh, the, the thought that God turns music into bliss. Hmm. He associates music with bliss and it pleases God. Last right. week we talked about David's harp right, or lair. That's right. And music pleases God. According to Paul Simon, his conception of God. And I'm just blown away by this old Jewish guy, Paul Simon, with his 38-minute song, Seven Psalms, and I've listened to it. More than once, and Great. the only songs I listen to more than once are usually yours. And but it's deep. Yeah.
7: Yeah. I've heard I've I've not heard them all. Did you listen to the whole album? Oh yeah. So yeah. it's one yeah.
1: th- it's seven segments it's, it, right. of one song. Exactly. And yeah. he used the term Psalms. That's yes. the of David. Right. So right. it he's getting religious as he gets older, and probably after the bio was written of him, but I didn't know, for example, that he wrote The Sounds of Silence right after the Kennedy assassination when he was 22.
7: Sounds like you have been reading his book.
1: Well, right, but he yeah. went into a dark room and right. he wrote that. He, right. was, he was so depressed. And, right. But he doesn't write depressing songs, he says. He says, that's, that's not my job. He wants to uplift people. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, where do you put him on your musical hierarchy?
7: at the highest level I mean as far as a songwriter right up there in the top 3 of our generation I would say you know and I don't even know who the other one would be other than Dylan but I mean there's a lot of great songwriters but Paul Simon he he is an American icon as a songwriter and performer and I mean he's been and the other thing about Simon is he's always changing he doesn't just rely on his old stuff you listen to his old stuff like Sounds of Silence and then how he went you know he Evolved from that to Graceland, and kind of he was the guy who brought in even the concept of world music, you know. Um, As the start, chop, yeah, integrating yes. African music yes. and, and, and uh, island music and that kind of thing with with Western music. Yes, uh, he did such a beautiful job. I mean, there there's a there's an, an album for the ages is Graceland.
1: Totally, and he's not getting any younger. He's eighty. I- but I, it's kind of my high holiday song this year, and I listen to it when I'm falling asleep because I like bells. I've told you that one song, you should add a bell in it where you have a reference to a bell ringing. Mm-hmm, and right. Seven Psalms starts with a bell. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I like that. And then it starts with... uh the pl- flock, and you don't know if he's talking about birds or people, mm-hmm. the refugees playing. Same mm-hmm. concept you use, mm-hmm. moon, sun. You guys, honest to God, when AI gets a hold of this, they're going to put you guys on the same channel. Right? <laughs> okay.
7: I'll, I'll wait for that. I'll look forward to that. You no, know? there was something about, I, in, in, in an interview he talked about, he started having dreams. And and in his dreams came some of these lyrics before the music.
1: Yes. He's a deep dude, and he's going through things because yeah. he's contemplating the end of life, which he is. is perfect by Yom Kippur.
7: Right. He lost the hearing in his left ear, and uh, that's been a real problem. He can't, you know, as I saw this interview, which was probably fairly recently, you know, within the last few months, he stopped touring, uh, playing live. He stopped he, because he says he can't hear well enough, and his pitch is off. That's a real problem. I mean, that's, that's got to be devastating for, for an artist.
1: There's an audible book where Malcolm Gladwell, a big fan and a great communicator, interviewed him. And uh, I've got that, too, because he's like you, my favorite musician. I put him just below you, and he (laughs) weaves in his favorite trademark phrases, kind of like you do. You know which one he uses again in Seven Psalms? Slippin' and Slidin'. Right. You know he had his song, Slip, Slidin' Away? A great and great song. And, right. and, and, I mean, we all had slipping Slides when we were growing up, but he yeah. made it his musical trademark. And yeah. think about that concept as we approach Jump Kapoor, Slippin' And slide
7: out of control, right? In, uh, really, uh,
1: it's, it's kind of like if you're slipping, you you might fall and hurt yourself. Yeah. And sometimes life, you're just sliding along like it's the green run, and mm-hmm. you can ski pretty easy. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Slipping and sliding. So, so you know what phrases you have you used over and over?
7: I don't. One by one. Oh, okay.
1: Yes, New Last Chance, right? You right. You said in that other song about uh, people were asked, what are you saying there? It's was one by one.
7: Right, the uh, the refugee song, Stranger in a Strange a Land. Stranger in right, a Strange Land. I, another I didn't even fra- know that, Another
1: Craig. phrase that you use a lot, and not many musicians do, Tard and Feathered. You even have a song called Tard and Feathered that I love. Mm-hmm. But here, uh, you, you've... Also use Feathered and Tart. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's Dave Gunder's thing. You like are paying attention. like, No, I'm a, I like the words in music. I like your music. Tell me more about When I Die. Are you serious? I mean, I'm going to be affected. I You're- might,
7: I might uh, remind the girls when the time comes. I'm like, you have to listen to that song and do what it says. You know, again, the idea of them having a road trip where they, as sisters, who are probably, you know, at the when hopefully this is far in the future. But, you know, let's say they have their families and their kids and, and they may be some, somewhat drifting apart as sisters, right? Um, because they have their own lives, even if they're close on the phone. But to uh, to have mandated a, a road trip to New Orleans uh, with some ashes to go do that, don't you think that would be an experience Well, lay them?
1: it out for them. That's the beauty of a yeah. podcast. It's yeah. there forever. Okay, so like 30 years from now, because your father's – Gonna be a hundred, God okay. willing. All right. all right, let's say thirty <laughs> it doesn't years. Doesn't have to be that all long. All right, tell them what to do. Where to stay, and what part of the river to drop your ashes.
7: No, no, they can discover that for themselves. I recommend the French Quarter. Anywhere in that big old river will do, because it's all going to disperse and flow from there.
1: I got to get to New Orleans with you. Just your excitement about that city. Um It, it would be interesting. I've told you the only time I went there was for government lawyers involved in capital litigation. At that cocktail party, they started stories with two little kids were walking through the woods. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go look at the Mississippi. Good. I'm going to listen to Paul Simon. Good decision. I'm going to listen. I didn't know you back then, Dave Kunders. So when I die, any other last instructions to your loved ones? Oh, husband? well,
7: I mean, you know, what the song talks about, since we don't know, what happens afterwards, right? If there's an afterlife
1: uh-huh.
7: or not, yes. um, or the great abyss. So in the meantime, what do we do? We live, we live every day, right? And, and, and enjoy every day. And I said, what the world needs now is kindness. Something about that, you know, be, be kind and, and live every day. That's, that's what I said we can kind of bank on, right? Since the rest of it is a mystery, that's something I feel pretty sure about, makes a difference.
1: And here's what I'm pretty sure about. God does like music, likes your music. I had Peter Simon on the other day, and I remember my dad, who was brilliant, but he didn't like that organ at Temple Emmanuel. Right. Too church like. Too church-like. Yeah. And yeah. he probably wound up like the guitar or Right. They right. bring in every kind of instrument, a violin. Rabbi
7: Black at yes. Temple Emmanuel has has uh has a wonderful band, guitars. Right. Um Cello, violin, so moving. Drums and bass.
1: Right. That's where we're going to go, God willing. Let's go tomorrow. we break the past, yes. Tomorrow? Yes. I'm down. I think God loves music. I think Paul Simon said it best. Seven Psalms is my high holiday song, but my special Yom Kippur song is When I Die by Dave Gunders. And the other thing about it, even though it's a morbid topic, your song is upbeat, uplifting. Sure. And you are envisioning the other side. And you're right. going to be part of the band. They're going to give you that. a guitar. That's right. That's what I'm hoping for. Let's let everybody listen. Here's our troubadour, Dave Gunders, When I Die. Thanks, troubadour. Good yontif.
7: And good yontif. Thanks, Craig.
4: To it I just live today still when my time comes remember what I say take me on back down to me, jump in the car and drive down New Orleans, take me on back down to the river, old Mississippi one muddy and wide, I can hear those angels. Banks of the river, watch that water flow Your dad is home. The in the van. Take me on back down to the river. Take me on home. Buddy and why? I can hear those angels on the other side. Take me on.
1: Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor, tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life.
8: So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's it's like the the smooth transition of power.
1: That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days?
8: best way, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to Michael michaeldailylawllc.com. And there is an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine.
1: Thanks, Michael. Hey, I promised a great show and I think I delivered. I gave it my all. The sound bites make some sense to me. I hope they make sense to you. Please subscribe, share, tell a friend. Tell them about Dave Gunders. He's up on Amazon, Apple, wherever. Put in Dave Gunders music, YouTube. You can get his seven albums. The dude is prolific. I never heard When I Die until I discovered it through the algorithms. It got fed to me, and I thought I knew them all. And it's in my top five now. Jane Feldman is in my Act 5, Attorney's Inner Sanctum. A welcome female presence, a prosecutor at heart, and a goodness shama, a great soul. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for listening. Special Episode 171. Until next time, be well. No Craig's Colorado Corner this week because of Yom Kippur. For those who observe, have an easy fast. Thank you. Be safe. Love to everybody. Kindness, too. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.